Welcome to Off the Bench with Danny Cannell. Danny Cannell. Back to throw versus Danny. Pete is tight end. And Raja Bell. Bell has got 22 to Raja. It's all the future of football right before your eyes. Just yell it out, man. He can't guard me. Good streaming people. Welcome to Cannell and Bell. Danny Cannell out on PGA Championship territory. Beth Page Black. Yeah, listen. <clears throat> I... I I come on here a lot, and I say he's got the light. Yeah. He's playing Beth Page today. Crazy. And you guys were there, which we'll get into a little bit. Brooks Kepa going back to back. And yep. you got four in his last eight play. Tommy Tran here with you with Raja Bell. So, uh, look, we're going to get to it if we have time in depth. But real quickly, Game of Thrones, your thoughts, Raja. I know you weren't very high coming into. I've wasted almost a decade of my life. I mean, like I, I knew that there was this petition going around. Like yeah. I had read about it. I thought it was the silliest thing ever. I was like, come on. I watched last night, yeah. and I am whoever knows someone passing the petition around. Allow me to put. My yeah, you go and sign it. That was just ridiculous. Got to put that on the Twitter account. See how many people will actually uh, sign that petition. So yeah, and I, I think it's fine. It's over. I'm done with it, and I can enjoy it and remember the best six seasons of Game of Thrones history, <laughs> and omit the last two. Uh, okay. So meanwhile, by the way, because so some people on Twitter were having to decide on one or the other because the the Raptors Bucks game bled over or yep. finished and. Uh, if you were smart, you were watching, you know, Game of Thrones on the big screen and then going streaming the Eastern Conference final on the other one. So I got to watch a little bit, albeit, uh, a two overtime affair. Yeah. So look, Raptors desperately needed the win. If anything, you can kind of look at it from a Toronto perspective and say, maybe we should actually be up two to one. That being said, they do get one. They're not going to get swept. What did you think and what was your biggest takeaway from game three? <sighs> Um, that you needed to get that win if you were Toronto, being able to hold Giannis to relatively pedestrian point numbers. He had 12, although he did have 23 boards and seven assists. Um, if he's going to only give you 12 points, if you're Toronto, you, you have to win that game. I always find it fascinating that you could look, um, at the same series through different prisms and have a completely different feel about him, right? Like if you're Milwaukee, you should be up 3-0. If you're Toronto, you could easily be up 2-1, right? You're talking about the same games, the same results. You're just looking at them from one lens to the other. Um, yeah, I, Toronto needed that game. Like, obviously, the numbers support. You go down 3-0, nobody's ever come back from that. So if you were going to be in this series, you're Toronto, you had to have that game. Um, and again, if you're Toronto, you're saying to yourself, look, this is what we have to do. The Bucks held serve. Now, we just have to come home, hold serve. We didn't play bad in the first game in, in Milwaukee. We can go back there. Steal game five, and then it's our series to be had. If you're if you're Toronto, that's the way you're approaching it. To me, and look, obviously you played in the league, you know a lot more than I do. But when I watch this series, when I watch that game, it just seemed like you know the Raptors would have that seven eight point lead. And I think once they push it to eleven, so they were always kind of ahead. They had an opportunity to push it to to, to a big blowout type thing, and yeah. maybe make it easier on themselves. And it just felt like. The eye test to me seemed like right now Milwaukee's the better team. Oh, yeah. And then obviously at the end they had a chance to, to steal it. I just feel like when you look at Milwaukee right now, I think Malcolm Brogdon's balling out right now. Mm -hmm. And him being healthy has been really big for them because I don't know if you get it consistently enough from George Hill or Eric Bledsoe. But Brogdon right now, I think at 20 points last game, he's also shooting the three really well. He could be a real spark because Chris Middleton's also kind of struggling right now. Yeah. Shooting the rock. So, again, when you're talking about how you create this wall for Giannis, and it's like, okay, who else is going to come through? Well, Middleton's your all-star, and Brogdon's a guy that which we talked about when he was hurt in a way was going to be a big piece, and, and so far, you know, he's played pretty well. Yeah, Malcolm Brogdon was always going to be a huge that, – that was the separator for me in terms of whether that team had legs that could carry them to a potential finals appearance or a team that was going to probably get beat. 
you know, in the second round or in the Eastern Conference Finals. Like, cause he, because he is a, you know, he's a glue guy, but a high end glue guy where he does a little bit of everything, but he does it really, really well. Like he can shoot the ball. You know, he can create. You saw him, you know, at the basket, kind of even late in the game, attacking Kawhi for the quick two for ones, stuff that your average glue guy doesn't do. He's a very high end glue guy and he gives them, you know, even, even more support for a bench that has been very productive, but doesn't really, I mean, let, let's think about the number twos in the league, right? You're talking about either Westbrook or Paul George. You're talking about CJ McCollum. Um, you, you know, names, names like, you know, in the past it had been Kyrie. Um, like Steph Curry is a number two. Or Clay, whatever. Clay, right. So you go to the Bucks and you've got Giannis and then like Chris Middleton's a nice player, but he's not your high end number two. So that means everything else has to be on the higher end of their three, four, five positions. And then Malcolm Brogdon is that for sure. And that's why on the other side of things you have to figure out for Toronto, Kawhi, and then is it Pascal Siakam? And then, Who's your three? It kind of Ibaka, yeah. Danny Green. Oh, by the way, Danny Green has also not been shooting the ball well, and and you and you question whether Norman Powell should get more playing time because he's been playing well. It's one of those interesting things if you're Nick Nurse because right now Danny Green not shooting well. I think he did one. He did hit a three late that kind of mattered, but right now he's kind of in a funk. And so I, I wonder if things start shooting poorly again in Game Four. Either you start pulling the trigger early on Norman Powell, or maybe even you get him in a little bit earlier than that. Yeah, I think you might, uh, and you hit a, you know, the, the next point, you know, on the docket was Toronto's in the same situation, except, you know, they're, they're three, four, and five. I mean, they're three, Kyle Lowry is, is, is hit or miss all the time. And then you start checking off, like, Marcus Soule's been really bad, even though he played great last night at 20, 20, Oh, no, he finally shot the rock well, but he didn't do the first. 12 boards, yeah. seven assists, right? Um, you know, Danny Green's been almost invisible, although he did hit a big shot. Now, here's the deal with, you know, Serge Ibaka, same thing, relatively, you know, poor numbers in the playoffs. Norman Powell has a, has, can have the effect that he had last night, like 19 points, a lot of hustle plays. Um, it's not consistent, right? And so the reason you would air with a Danny Green, even if he's not playing great, is because you know that, you know, consistently he's going to be where he's supposed to be defensively. You know, he's going to do some of the other things um, that, that you can count on. What I would say is Norman Powell, yeah, if Danny Green comes out, doesn't hit a couple shots early in the next game, get Norman Powell out there. See if he's cooking, right? Because if he is cooking, mm-hmm. then, yeah, clearly that's, that's, that's the way to go. But if he's not cooking, um, then i got to go with a vet who's been there, who's done that, who I can trust, you know, in those moments. And, again, Danny Green did hit a huge, a huge three last night. So that's what I'm – you know, when I look at that series, again, when we talk about, well – the Bucks have Giannis Middleton, and then you know you incorporate who number three is. And I think the thought process, if you thought Toronto was going to move on, was that they had a more complete team, a bigger bench. What about Fred Van Vliet? A yeah, guy that guy that last postseason, obviously with that uh, Cleveland series, his health was an issue, but uh, obviously he's been healthy, and he's also kind of been struggling a little bit here. I don't know what to make of that because you know I thought he had a good playoffs last year, yeah. and he had a really good regular season. So you would have expected him to take that next step. In the playoffs, um, and he's regressed. I mean, he was one for 11 last night, one for eight threes. They're going, they're almost daring him to shoot the ball. It just looks really uncomfortable. There is a, there's a mental aspect to all sports, and he's struggling with his mental right now. He, he's having a tough time believing in Fred Van Vliet. And hopefully he can turn around, cause I, I get it if you are talking about the Sixers series where all the guards are taller than you, the Ben Simmons, but this series, um, you know, for Fred Van Vliet going up against the Bucks guards, they're not that tall. You're talking about Hill, Bledsoe, and then if you forgot Brogdon on him, it yeah, shouldn't be that bad. Right? But they're really tough, though. I mean, though, you're talking about like Milwaukee's length. I think doesn't get talked about enough. It, not the guards necessarily, 
But they're just length around. You know, you're talking about Giannis. And you're talking about Miritich is 6'10". Brooke Lopez. Brooke Lopez is 7 feet. And Chris Middleton is, you know, 6'8", super long. But their guards, you know, Eric Bledsoe is an all-NBA defensive team guard. Mm-hmm. George Hill was at one point. Um, he's a really tough defender. And Malcolm Brogdon is one of those kind of pit bulls. Yeah. So, you know, they got defensive chops. They were the number one team in the league defensively this year. Let's wrap things up there with the Kawhi talk. Um, I thought, look, those guys at TNT do a really good job. I felt like they missed... I was watching it live, saw the, the, the Kawhi basket in transition, then it came out kind of hobbling. They didn't acknowledge it for for a little bit, and then we still don't get a, a real concrete answer during the game. The sideline reporter, Christian Ledlow, was like, yeah, they're not, as long as he's on the floor, we're not going to have an update until right. he's. So he played 52 minutes, joked about Pascal Siakam. He couldn't hit those free throws to, to, to limit some of his minutes, but he plays 52 minutes, played well. At times when you're watching, didn't have the, the burst throughout the game. Sure. Yet he powered through on that leg. I don't know if it was a, a thigh. It couldn't be a knee or ankle. Probably been a little bit worse, but he came out and he really, the claw, uh, took it to them and, and big reason why they won game three. Yeah, no, Kawhi was fantastic. You're talking about 36 points, 52 minutes. He was 11 for 25. Uh, two for four threes, nine rebounds. He he has to have games like that for them to win. And you're talking about a double overtime squeaker when Giannis was pretty poor offensively. So there's no margin for error with Kawhi. He just needs to wrap his mind around that if they have a chance to win games. You know, the scary thing for me is he's got to guard Giannis, right? Like yesterday he guarded Giannis. Um, what, 41 possessions, I guess, and he had just, he had defended him only 19 combined in games one and two. Um, and you saw the effect that it had on Giannis. Like, that wasn't a coincidence that Giannis struggled from the field. Now, the rest of his team did a very good job of what you would call walling up defensively, which means, you know, if I'm guarding Giannis at the top of the key, those two wing defenders would also be like on the elbows, in close enough proximity to me where Giannis can't get downhill, making him kick the ball out. Whenever Giannis was at the rim, you had five people around him, you know, swatting at the ball. They did a much better job on him, but having to burn Kawhi on both ends of the court, and they'll have to do that to continue that success on Giannis, it's going to take his toll. And if that injury, I don't know what it is, he didn't seem to be that limited by it. He played 52 minutes and was still I mean, he might not have had his normal pop. Maybe late in the game, he had that left-handed yep. dunk. It looked like he was yeah. he exploded out of a cannon. I, if there's anything to that injury, having to burn him defensively and then carry the load offensively um, is is a is a win for Milwaukee. All right, so you got Game Four coming up. By the way, six thirty-five point or better games for Kawhi Leonard. That's already a Raptors yeah. franchise record. So he's got that done in like one postseason, uh, being part of We the North. So again, the Raptors. Cut that deficit from down 0-2, now 2-1. Again, heading to Game 4. Toronto with a chance to tie things up at home. Milwaukee, I think, was like a a 2.5-point favorite. They were a 2.5-point dog coming into Game 3. All right, PGA Championship recap. It was a really good Sunday yesterday before Game of Thrones, before Raptors and Bucks, and that was Brooks Kepka. You were out there with DK. Again, we talked about Danny still being out there right now. I was watching... The back nine where Kepka looks like he's doing fine. And he actually hit that. He almost hold out 10 where he mm-hmm. started his round and things were looking good at 13 under. And then he had like three or four straight bogeys. And then meanwhile, DJ comes and starts chipping at it. And then you're down to one. Yep. Um, this would have got, I mean, it, first of all, congratulations to Brook Kepka. It was an amazing experience walking around and watching him and Tiger, um, and Francesco play and get an appreciation for, you know, I watched. Excuse me, Brooks on the range, and he just he stripes the ball, and he walks around with this air of of just invincibility. Um, and it was pretty cool to watch. 
although it almost came to a crashing halt oh, yesterday. Yeah. He he showed, you know, for everybody saying, like, this is the next Tiger or, you know, he's going to take – look, he's great. He's the world number one. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about a missed – what was that, on 16 for Dustin when he flew the green? Like, he, he – he, he, you know, he was sitting there in, in the catbird seat right in the middle of the fairway, and he just kind of – I don't know if he overcooked it, but the draw came in hot and it was over the green. That would have been really dicey because Brooks was falling apart. Um but good for him, man. He's the, he's the world's number one. It was a cool experience to say I was there watching uh, part of history. Uh, I just don't know that he is that Tiger-esque level, right? In terms like, of, like, intimidation or how he... How in terms of, un, like, before, Ti- before Tiger had that whole personal meltdown, right. I don't mean to be a Tiger, like, apologist here, but before that, you rarely ever... He didn't... There was no melt... There was no stretch like that in a, in a Tiger championship where he bogeyed five holes and it's coming to a screeching halt and you know what i mean like I, you just saw some there there he is human i guess brooks kepka is thankfully he had that course record 63 7 under on thursday and then a friday that backed it up with five under again 12 under going into saturday and sunday so gave himself that cushion to allow himself sure to, to win right there and look and we're looking at the record setting weekend for him again you can talk about you know how well he's done. He's gone back to back at the PGA. He's gone back to back at the U.S. Open. He's got four out of the last eight tournaments that he has played. He missed the 2018 Masters due to an injury. So, look, he's going through one of the, the these crazy stretches in golf history that we've rarely seen. He's got four majors at the age of 29. Right now, puts him in terms of active golfers: Rory McIlroy, Tiger Woods. Uh, the only other two right now that you could probably put as a comp right now of what they've done. And he said he wants to win 10. And so, you know, golf's tough, man. You win majors. And we saw Tiger. Obviously, there was a time when we thought he was going to take Jack and, and easily surpass him. And now he's struggling to even be, you know, right there. He's got 15 getting close to 18. And Brooks right now, that you can't – I will talk to you about you when you're talking about, like, I think he's on this crazy run. Now, whether he affects other golfers, I don't know if Brooks does that to people. Another thing that I want to bring up, it's funny because I have a friend back home and, and we're watching the Sunday coverage and uh, she is a like huge Jordan Speed fan. Uh-huh. I, I feel like, and this matters because like Brooks Kepka is a little bit polarizing and that some people like him and some people don't like him. And right. He was like, oh, I'm not rooting for Kepka. I hate the guy. He's arrogant, a little cocky yeah. on Jordan Speed. I was like, I love it. I love the way, the way he carries you know, that himself. bro. Yeah, that right. kind of thing that he goes out there. And I was totally okay with it. Um, what did the vibe did you get out there when you were kind of following? Oh, I like Brooks. I'm yeah. a fan. Like I, 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 and I don't doubt that he might be able to get 10. Like I, I when I said like he's like, he, there's, there's, he's human. Uh, I just mean like Tiger was superhuman for a while. And so that was an every event type of like, oh my God, here's Tiger again. Brooks, I feel like that with majors. So like he's a big game hunter when, when the, when the lights are the brightest and the biggest game is out there, that's when, that's when Brooks is, is showing up. And there's something to be said for that. So I like the way Brooks carries himself. I think Brooks at majors is, is as viable as anyone. Like I, I would, I would put money on Brooks Kepka to keep winning majors. I, I just meant when I said he 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 looks like he's human. You know, I don't know that Brooks does that every tournament. He's he's yeah. the world's number one golfer, sure. but I don't know if it's like that. I think Brooks Kepka. When you say his name to me, I think majors, and I do think that eventually he'll be creeping close to maybe getting ten of those bad boys because he he just he's got a thing with them. Yeah, and major Kepka we've seen now a different level than PGA Tour Kepka, which hasn't been as successful clearly from what he did. All right, so let's move on. Uh, by the way, we'll, we'll get a chance to see sort of the Kepka effect at the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach in about 24 days or mm-hmm. so. And Tiger Woods, we think, will be there, of course. So here's another thing. You got a chance to be out there with Kepka, Tiger, and Francesco Molinari in that first pairing. 
uh, featured group on Thursday. He missed the cut. And, yeah. and there was a lot of talk about how he won the Masters and took all that time off. Now, again, for the first time in 70 years, the PJ Championship held in May, traditionally held at the uh, end of August or latter part of summer there to close out the season. What'd you see from Tiger? Because obviously it's easy to say now that he was rusty, yeah. not playing any golf. Yeah, he just didn't look sharp. I mean, he, you know, I know they said there was some illness. We were supposed to go watch a practice round of his on he Wednesday. Wednesday. He skipped it, right? Yeah, and we rushed off the set to go see it, and then it was, you know, it, they said he wasn't going to be there, but no one knew that he, that he had this illness until a couple days later. Um, I don't know how much of a role that played in, and I think anytime you come off of a huge emotional win like he did at Augusta, um, and then you don't play competitively for five weeks, Pair that with playing at a place like Beth Page, where every golfer that was out there pretty much said this is the toughest course we've had to see. Like that's just a a, a bad uh, uh, set of circumstances, right? That, that that equals coming out and probably missing a cut. You, you haven't played in five weeks. The last time you played was super emotional. Um, you're playing the toughest golf course on on the tour this year. It was just a, a, a you know a series of unfortunate events that all led to him missing the missing the cut. First time he's missed a cut. After a major win, so the first time it's happened to him after 15 major championships. Yeah, you know, he before <clears throat> earlier in the week he had made a reference about Peyton Manning. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot like Peyton Manning when he lost uh, the zip on his his fastball, his throws, and he said you got to be a little bit smarter as you get older. Obviously, Tiger 43 years old now, so the way he prepares, how he rests. Now that'll yeah. be the interesting thing because traditionally, like I mentioned, how long it's been since the PGA has been been held in the month of May. You usually would have time to rest before majors, and now you're pretty much going three in about four months or whatever. It's right. Going to be. So now it's going to be moving forward. Tiger's really going to have to be smart about what he plays, which PGA tournament tours he misses. Because if he's going to go Masters, PGA, U.S. Open, that's all going to be back to back. And again, like Pebble Beach, Torrey Pines, those are those are places that Tiger generally does well. But again, he's going to have to sort of make that decision and, and navigate that rest versus rust type thing. Yeah, totally. And I actually think you know it's kind of like playoff team right like you're playing in a game seven um you got an older team you go down 25 you're in a game six let's say you got game seven on your home court you're down 25 on the road you might shut guys down trying to be fresh for game seven at home that's kind of what this is for beth page at beth page for tiger right like he only took half of the work because he missed the cut so if if he's going to be ready to play um in a few weeks the best case scenario was he doesn't play and extend himself all the way out this week you know what i'm saying if there's a silver lining in that for tiger that rest uh, that he would normally you know, have to account for after four days of work. They're only two days of work, so maybe you get a little bit more rest in the bag and you're a little fresher for the next tournament. I, don't, I see it kind of the same way. It's not a distance thing with Tiger. Like He can still hit the ball. Like he can still get out there with some of those guys. He might not be as long as the longest guys, but it is about maintaining like your body um, and navigating your way through you know, age and the injuries that would come with age. So um, you know, that's going to be important, and it's going to be important for him to kind of pace himself, figure out what events um, are, are the most meaningful ones, and then what he would have to do, the recipe in terms of the lead-up to be as sharp as he can be for those events. NTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official channel. 
Lounge podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go! It's the most all-star studded challenge ever. And this time, it's every competitor for themselves. Best challenge ever! The Challenge All-Stars. New season now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. NBA talk. Uh, we talked about D'Antoni. He wants to stay with the Rockets. They don't get to this spot. It's going to be Warriors and Blazers right now. And, boy, what can you do if you're Portland? I know there's the Lillard rib injury, but even if he's at 100%, it has not been in their favor. It's been a bad matchup, right? Not only this year, but in history. A couple years ago, the Warriors swept them. The Warriors beat them the year before. Something I want to ask you, because you're the perfect guy to ask. So the Warriors, I read a lot about this, and I hear it from more like inside basketball guys. Mm -hmm. The the concept of blitzing Lillard and doing this two-in-one zone-type trap stuff, like what does Golden State do differently or maybe better than everybody else that really limits what Lillard has been able to do? I don't know that they do it better than everyone else. I just hadn't seen anyone do it to him in the playoffs. Like blitzing – Blitzing him, uh, they're pick and roll coverages, right? And like, you'll have a coverage, whatever your terminology is for, for like your guard going over the pick and roll and your big dropping back. We used to call that covering the turn. Um, you, you'd have, uh, you know, your under coverage where the big might push up, release at the last minute, guard goes underneath and, and retrieves his, his offensive player on the other side of the screen. Um, blitzing typically means trapping where the big is up and he's attached to the big that's setting the screen. The guard who's guarding the ball, or Damian Lillard in this case scenario, would go over the screen, and they would effectively trap him on the other side of the screen. You want this big defensively to be up early, this guard to get over, and you run Damian Lillard in some sort of tight space over here, where if he wants to make a play, he's got to be two of you guys. That takes a lot of energy to do the entire game. So you're getting effectively just getting the ball out of his hands. What Golden State has done to him, though, because the counter to that would be not as not to run as many pick and rolls, right, to let him go one-on-one. Well, Golden State has said, all right, well, all right, if you're not going to run the pick and roll and Damian Lillard's got the ball up here on the court, we're just going to send the nearest defender into a blitz type of situation would be another trap. We're just going to send him at him high up on the floor. That then turns into somewhat of a too high zone. He's got to get off of the ball, and then someone else is going to have to make a play. One of their secondary ball handlers has to make a play. It's been very effective in, A, limiting Damian's ability to get cooking, uh, and then, B, they don't have the guys around him other than C.J. McCollum that can consistently make plays. So, again, he's got that separated, or suffered, I should say, separated ribs uh, from game two. He said, I don't think it's something that's affecting my game. Do you buy it? I do not. I, I would say this unequivocally because I was checking my cocoa. Before we came on, I was – Was that what you were doing? I wanted to make up, sure. I wasn't going to ask. And I was looking at my ribs. I don't know if you can see it through my shirt, but this rib here uh, protrudes more than that one does. So, even when I'm, like, laying down doing Supermans and stuff like that, that rib is digging into the floor. It's really uncomfortable. That one's not. Manu Ginobili separated this rib, um, I don't know, 2007 maybe. Yep. It was excruciating. Like, it was really, really uncomfortable. There wasn't – I couldn't do much at all. So, if he's got a separated rib, I, I don't even know how he's out there, you know, getting shots up and, and playing to the degree that he's playing. Um Maybe he's getting shot up. I'm just speculating here, like, to get rid of the pain. But I do not buy that it's not affecting his game. One, not at all. And one of the other tough things, if you're a Rip City fan, again, you have these leads at halftime that you're unable to hold off. The Warriors, of course, have that patented third quarter. But that one was really rough. They're better than game you, dude. Eight. They're better than you. Like, they're better than you. Like, that's <laughs> what it boils down to, right, Tommy? We could sit here. Break things down. Yeah, yeah we could no, do I, it all. The point, the point bad is. Bad matchup. Really yeah, too. Golden State is really, really good. Now, having said that, without Iguodala tonight, um, 
it could get interesting in a one you know in a one game scenario. They're not going to beat Golden State in this series, but without Iggy, you, you could make a case for 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 taking Portland tonight. But the at the bottom line is Golden State they're better than you, man. They got the two best players on the floor, and Draymond is quickly uh, the third becoming the third best player. He's he's playing fantastic. So to your point. One of the things, and we'll get to Draymond in just a second, but the Warriors' ability to sort of, you know, we talk about flipping switches, and that's usually mostly a, a motivational and energetic type thing. Yep. I am more sort of impressed with sort of how they're able to just sort of change their game and look. Because, like, when Katie went out, we're just like, oh, they're just going to go back to the 2014-15 Warriors and play the way they play. But you're like, okay, well, Leandro Barbosa ain't on that squad yep. no more. Harrison Barnes ain't on the squad no yep. more. They're not walking through the door. And yet when you watch the last two and a half, three games without KD, they do look like that old Warriors where you got Steph and Clay coming around curls. You got Draymond obviously coming up. Handling the ball, being the facilitator. It's been really impressive to see them sort of be looking like the old Splash Brothers. Because we don't, we don't use that term anymore when KD got there, but now that's like back with Clay and Steph, here they go, especially Steph. Yeah, I think stylistically, you're talking about flipping that switch and just, and just playing a different way. It's an easier thing to do when what you're doing is who you are to begin with, right? So the way they play with KD isn't the best version of the Warriors offensively. It, it wasn't who they were at the inception of this. It was something that they kind of morphed into to be able to accommodate Correct. Um, Kevin Durant's brilliant brilliance, right? So when you subtract him from the equation, they just go back to doing what's natural for them. It's easier to do that than to try to reinvent yourself and play a whole other style of basketball that you're not used to, right? Like So you know, it's not as surprising to me that they're able to do it because – that's the way they were built. It's what they had always kind of done. You weren't asking them to step outside of themselves and do different stuff. They're just going back to what feels natural for them. And, you know, the interesting part about it for me is I know they're better with Kevin Durant. And I know that. I know he gives them matchups that, that, that are beneficial for them. He gives them an, an opportunity no matter what you do defensively to them. He can get a bucket. Like all of that. You know, is security that you want to have as a basketball team. But when you watch all of those guys, the Clays, the Draymonds, the Stephs, they're better without him. Like their individual game is better without him. He, they, they all, um, fall back into doing what made you fall in love with Golden State as a team in the first place was the way the ball moved, the people moved. You couldn't really account for where they were going to be. It, for a basketball purist, it's fun to watch because right. when you're talking about teaching kids and teaching the game, that's the way you want to teach it. Kevin Durant is an individual brilliance, mm-hmm. kind of like James Harden. But you don't really want to teach that. Not everybody can do that. Like who around here is walking around at six eleven with uncanny like hand eye coordination and super athleticism? You can't teach a, a random kid to play basketball like Kevin Durant does. Like you, you might want to try to steal some of his moves, but you still can't even get him off. You teach him to play like Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, and Steph Curry. What if, as a role player, the Quinn Cooks, the Jordan Bells, the Jarebkos of the world, is yeah. it easier to play like free like they are yes. now? Because when you got Katie, like you mentioned, Katie will bail you out sometimes. Does that lull you as a role player? Or, like, okay, I'm going to defer to Katie or a Steph. Or like, it feels like obviously these guys have contributed, which they have. All about like, touches. What? It's all about touches. That in a basketball game, it's touches. That's how you feel comfortable in the game, right? That's how you start to get your offensive game going. Touches. Touches, touches. You don't have to be shooting them, but the, you're touching the ball. The That's flow. getting you in a flow, right? And then, you know, you got, you got a little mojo going and now defensively you're engaged. You might get a steal. You might get a layup. So I use playing with Allen Iverson as an example. Again, individually brilliant and so brilliant that he could carry your team to like, you know, championship 
uh, series. We didn't win it, but he carried you there. It's hard to play with him sometimes because you never get a touch on the ball. So when you're that supporting cast and you've only touched the ball three times and then all of a sudden it's in your hands and you got to make a shot, well, you're not really oiled up. You're not really in a flow. Kevin Durant kind of does that because he's got the ball in his hands so much. And he's in this ISO. The ball's not moving. People aren't moving. But he's bailing you out because he's knocking down tough shot after tough shot after tough shot. When you subtract him from that equation and that ball's moving around the court, people are flying, you're in transition, all of those role players get more touches on the ball. They're that much more comfortable. And eventually, because they are good players, they'll start to produce. Now, whether we're taking a look at Katie's offensive impact with and without him, one constant through all of that has been Draymond Green. My goodness, he has stepped up his game. All of his numbers are better in the postseason. I think he's up to like 12 a game in the postseason. There we go right now. Some other splits there with mm-hmm. Kevin Durant. But he's back to being, again, that Swiss Army knife, a guy that can do everything. Now, when you looked at Clay and Steph and Draymond and Katie, when you're like, okay, out of those four, who looks like – their game is deteriorating a little bit more than the others. You would normally say Draymond, but right now he's probably been most outside of Steph. I mean, the most important warrior in the postseason. Yeah, we he's been fantastic. Not, I mean, his skill set. You know, there was a time where I kind of marginalized Draymond and what he meant to the to the Golden State Warriors, and now in this series, um, and without without Kevin Durant, like he's really changed my opinion on what he means to them. And I don't mean just emotionally. Because there, there was a time when I was like, yeah, emotional leaders are important. I was an emotional leader of teams. And so, you know, I want to believe that how, you know, that that's super important to what they do. And there is some importance. But that guy's way more than that for Golden State. He is the engine that kind of drives them. And without Kevin Durant, you, Kevin Durant doesn't need you to kind of make offense for him. You know, he doesn't need, he, you give him the ball, you get out the way, you watch him do what he does. Um, he doesn't have to facilitate and, and and, and have you push the ball down the court and get him in open spots. Um, some of the other guys do. Even even Steph Curry and Clay Thompson need that at times to supplement what they do because they're not 6'11", I'll shoot over you anytime I want type of players. They've got to work so hard to get what they get that to maintain that scoring pace, they need some easy ones. And Draymond Green provides everyone with the easy ones. Clear a board, take that thing coast to coast. Um, look, there he is, steal in the open court. I was, heck, like, that, boom. Tee him up for for a three point shot, right? He just knows where everybody wants the ball. Um, he he feels when he's drawing defenses. He's got an uncanny ability to pass the ball for his size. Um, and, and what he does defensively, I haven't even touched on that. I was going to say, I was going to bring that up. You can switch him, and he can guard one through five, and and really well, and really well. Correct, correct. He he means way more to that team um, than I thought he does from a skill perspective. And I don't. <laughs> I don't know how many conversations, cause remember, uh, him shooting threes and Steve Curry used to pull out his hair cause they're like, you know, Draymond maybe wanted to prove that he could shoot threes. Right. So his credit, I think, in this postseason, he's been very selective yeah. with that. And if anything, he'll, again, be more of a facilitator and he's passed up some of those threes. So again, I think we're in agreement. Uh, by the way, Warriors take care of it tonight? No. No, you think Portland, Portland. gets one back? Yep. No, back to Oral. Back with Canel and Bell, Tommy Tran, Raja Bell. We're going to get to the Magic Johnson stuff in a little bit, which has become crazy juicy. Um. Love it. All right, let's hit on Le'Veon Bell real quick. So the report out there is the Jets could be open to trading Le'Veon Bell. Yes, the former All-Pro running back, which they just got uh, in the offseason. But, of course, they had so many changes recently with the general manager, Mike McCagnin, apparently not getting along with Adam Gase. So Adam Gase now the interim general manager, although we don't expect that to, to last too long uh, with some help coming via Philly. But John Clayton, formerly of ESPN, he's out in Seattle, told a local radio station out in Pittsburgh that people thinking about getting a trade could happen. If there's a suitor, quote, I could absolutely see the Jets trading him before the start of the season. Don't, don't do it, Jets. Don't let Adam get Don't do it. Don't look. I, 
I don't mean to be an Adam Gase basher, but first of all, I, I find it like laughable that you just hired this dude. If you're what's his name, Mike McCagnin, mm-hmm. you just hired Adam Gase, and and you guys are disagreeing already. Like, what are you, what are you disagreeing on? You should be in in lockstep with the dude that you hired. You guys should know. You should be philosophically on the same page. You should ha- you should be aligned. You know, in your vision for what this is going to look like. All of that, you as the general manager should have figured out about Adam Gase before you hired him. So really. It's it's your own fault that the dude has stabbed you in the back and now he's wearing two hats. But if you're the Jets, this dude has a track record of doing this. And he has no real track record of winning. So I would caution you to allow him to come into your franchise and start stripping it of its of its players. And you can say what you want about Le'Veon Bell. Yeah, okay. You can talk about the money and whether he was worth it and you know whether what went down in, in, in Pittsburgh was a mess. All that. I can't dispute any of it, right? right. But he is a good football player. He is one of the better backs in the NFL. Do not let Adam Gase come in here and start doing what he did in Miami that did not lead to any wins. If there was a track record in Miami of success after he got rid of Jay Ajayi and after he ran, um, what's the receiver's name that's in uh, uh, Cleveland right now, Jarvis Landry, yep. after he ran that talent out of town, if that team then took off the Miami Dolphins, that is, played well, made the playoffs, and you're saying Adam Gase come in and do that for us, okay, but it didn't, and he wound up getting fired in Miami. Do not let him start cleaning your shelves in, in, in New York. Hire yourself a GM. To your point, it's just been crazy how much clout Adam Gase has for a guy that did make one postseason with Miami, but that was early in his tenure and then hasn't been able to replicate. And they limped into that. It was tra- it was a, it was a, it was, it, that wasn't because the Dolphins were great. It was because the, the rest of the league and their conference was poopy. Right. And they got the wild card and then they got to the postseason, uh, I think bowing out to the Steelers, I think a few years ago. All right, let's get to, the Magic Johnson stuff right now. Um, Coca, you got uh, a little bit of filling in for us as we as we kind of tee this up because this has been happening as we've been doing the show here. Yeah, so it looks like Magic Johnson is not holding back when it comes to Rob Palinka and the Lakers organization. Uh, he's appearing on ESPN's first take right now, and and he basically said that Rob Palinka is a backstabber. Um, he wasn't having fun coming to work anymore because he knew that Palinka was going to be there. Uh, he basically said, like, Jeannie Buss needs to stop listening to all these voices there. But then I thought it was pretty funny where he basically said uh, – if she puts the team up for sale, that he'll be one of the first people to put a group together to uh, to buy the Lakers organization. But it, it's it's a really bad look for I think both him and the Lakers organization right now. Um, first off, we just came off of a story with the Jets about how the the infrastructure of the front office needed was not in sync. Yes, and again, this is a situation where I don't you know the McCagnan Gates type thing. I mean, Palinka's Magic's dude. Correct. He brought him in. Uh, yeah, I, I so he, I have no real insight into what took place there in L.A. So while the optics say that Magic brought Palinka in, Palinka might have been a hire because of his co- ties with Kobe um, by someone other than Magic. It could have been where Jeannie said, "Hey, we need to bring in Palinka because thank you, Debo." Um, she trusted uh, Kobe's uh, word on what I, I don't know that that was his guy. I can't tell you that for sure. I, I do know that the Lakers are a mess, and I do find it fascinating that Magic decides to just go on first take the same day that Rob Palenka and Frank Vogel and the Lakers are going to have their introductory press conference of their new head coach. I find him beating him, beating them to the punch and kind of stealing the spotlight just fascinating. Um, I don't know that it's a terrible look for Magic. 
I, I would dispute. Well, clearly, that. I think he knows what he's doing because he's you know he's in the studio, which means it's not just a phone call, right? Just a little Skype setup. Um, Arash Markazi, columnist out in L.A., said, "Yeah, the the Vogel Palinka press conference coming up at 11 a.m. Um, and you're talking about Genie Bus not scheduled to address the media today or this week. So we'll see if Magic's interview changes. She should not anything on that. You think she, she should, should not. not? She should not respond. She should not. Here are some cliff notes from uh, Magic." On first take. So the straw that broke the camel's back is that I wanted to fire Luke Walton. I said, listen, we've got to get a better coach. That's Magic hinting that he wanted the Lakers to hire Ty Lue. Magic on the backstabbing quote, just Rob. I wasn't having any fun coming to work anymore, especially when I got to work beside you. (laughs) Knowing that you want my position. Word. MJ on the current structure with the Lakers quote, I didn't. Like that Tim Harris was too involved in basketball. Jeannie's got to stop that. There are too many people at the table. You can't run a corporation like this. We've got everybody having a voice. We're talking about Harris being the Lakers COO. More magic on whether Jeannie Buss should sell the Lakers. Again, Coco talked about it. If she decides to sell, be knocking on her door. And then apparently Magic Johnson on being reportedly CC'd in emails, quote, I don't know if the emails were sent. I didn't see any emails. I only heard about the emails after Rick Buecher. Long-time guy who's covered the association. What would have been the nature of those emails? Coco, do we know? I don't know right now. Give me a second. I'll look something up. But look, all of this paints a picture of dysfunction within the Lakers. and and So L.A. From the people that I know in front offices, that's kind of the picture that other people have of them as well, that that's not run very well. It's not run like you would expect the biggest brand possibly in sports to be run. It's more of like a mom and pops type of thing. And... You know, there's some real validity to some of this stuff that Magic is talking about. Like, first of all, they did need a better coach. Like, I like Luke Walton, and he could wind up being, you know, a very good coach in the NBA. His window uh, of 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 um, success isn't aligned with with where the Lakers are right now, and what you will need to do with with LeBron. So he has to go. There's there's nothing wrong with that in terms of backstabbing with Rob. If he felt that that was happening, yeah, that would be a miserable place to be. The Tim Harris situation yeah. from what happened with. When the leaks came up about who they were looking to to to, re, to hire to replace Luke Walton, and I got to hear that Kurt Rambis is involved, Kurt Rambis's wife is involved, all the names of people that are involved in that process, that tells me everything I need to know. You are correct, Magic. There are way too many people in that organization with a voice as to what you should be doing and the direction in which your franchise is heading in. People are paid to do specific jobs. Stay in your lane. Trust the people that you hire to do those jobs to give you the opinion that you need. You can't be going out and soliciting advice from everybody and their mom. That's why I was on the show and I said, yeah, I I sent, I texted in my vote for who the coach could be because it felt like that's the way they were running stuff in LA. Everybody who had anything to do with the organization in any capacity got a say in what they were going to do. And you cannot run any business like that. Yeah, whether Magic's success in the sports world in terms of, you know, as a head coach or now a front office person in basketball remains to be seen, but obviously his success as a entrepreneur and as a businessman has been well documented, obviously, yeah. right? So he, he would know something about it too. Uh, back to Rick Bucher, by the way, quote, my understanding is that there were some emails that were exchanged between Rob and Jeannie Buss about Magic Johnson about what Magic was and wasn't doing, they were critical emails. Again, Rick Buecher, hey, shout out Long Bay Area guy right now. Hey, it's VR, among other things right now. Um, by the way, one thing, with the stuff that's kind of being shed on with the light that's been shed on lately with, with Magic stepping down, now this. Obviously, the goal was to get Anthony Davis. It probably still is the goal for L.A. How much now 
as critical as we were with Del Dems before he got let go? Do we, right. Do we, do we see him a little bit differently now? Do we, do, we, do, we, do we see him as saying, you didn't mess this up as bad as maybe we thought you did because of what's going on in L.A.? Or there's still blame to be going around here? Um, look, I, didn't, I was never a dude like – and I, 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 don't, I don't think it was all Del, – Del Dems was hamstrung with what he was allowed to do there in New Orleans and what he wasn't allowed to do. I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying that Del Dems is the best general manager in the world, but I'm certainly not here you know, blaming him 100% for the way it went down with the Lakers. Um, I do think you're positioned with the right guy if you're in New Orleans right now, David Griffin, to navigate your way through this and to kind of fleece whoever it is that you're gonna that you're gonna wind up pulling a trade with, um, in, in, in the process. Like I think Griff is going to get a haul. He's gonna get whatever he wants. He's gonna hold the league hostage for Anthony Davis if he can't make it work there. So if you're in New Orleans, you got to be sitting in a in a really nice spot right now. Well, according to Magic, uh, Dell does deserve most, if not all, the blame because again, right now on the show, he said. Quote, I told Del Demps, let's negotiate in private. What we offer, let's keep it between us. Del didn't do that, so that's how it got out. Yeah, but, I mean, according yeah. To Magic, I mean, according again, to Magic. According to Magic. There were also reports, though, that Dell was leaking the information um, because his 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 owner wanted him to leak the information. Do you know what I mean? So, like, I, I don't... I don't know that that was Dell's call. Dell gotcha. Dell wind up Dell wound up falling on the sword, you know, for one reason or another. But I don't know that ultimately it was his call. The interesting thing becomes for me if you're if you're the Lakers now and you're Rob Palinka and to get Anthony Davis you have to give up the number four pick and all of your young assets, like everything you have. Is do you do it? Like do you, you know what I mean? Like is that the direction you want to go in? Is that enough? I would still. I don't think Anthony Davis and LeBron is enough. Like you're going to need, you're going to need more. You're going to need a Kyrie in that mix. You're going to need. Do those, does Kyrie and Anthony Davis and LeBron work together? Like there are more things you have to figure out there. I don't, and I don't know that I'm leveraging everything right now at a swing at Anthony Davis. I'm just not sure. Yeah, that's the tough thing with the Lakers. They, they have so much help that they still need. So giving up assets to even get an asset like Anthony Davis is a little bit tough. It's not like some of these other situations where just straight up free agency and cash right. through the trick. Like LA still got a lot to fix. All right. So Magic Johnson starting our week off with some things to I talk about you, Magic, here. So. I hear you, bro. Tell them why you mad. <laughs> Back with you here on Canel and Bell wrapping things up on a what's become a pretty eventful Monday so far. <laughs> uh Mike D'Antoni reportedly wants to to stay in Houston for at least three years, all right? So he's going to final year of his deal. Again, it's kind of that whole close but not close enough group. Mm-hmm. I had mentioned last week, you know, this Rockets team with your son's teams and C-Webs, Kings teams, about where they are and how good they might be. Your initial thoughts about maybe keeping him around a little bit longer if you're Houston. Yeah, they've been, they've been uh, really good the last couple of years, and they haven't won – the championship, but only one team gets to make that claim. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like he was, he was in the minority there. He's in the majority of people that don't win a championship. His teams have been very good. They've been knocking on the door. And I would argue that, you know, if you can figure out how to kind of supplement around the perimeter or around the edges of, of the stars that you have there a little bit better than you did this year, your window could be further opening next year when Golden State kind of reshuffles the deck to some degree, right? If that happens, your window's still open. So having Mike in place right. with with what you already know you're going to get from them offensively and defensively kind of makes sense. I think what is tough about if you move on from Mike D'Antoni, especially now when you've got peak James Harden, is you've built with Daryl Morey, you've built this team a certain way. Mm-hmm. You play a certain yeah. way. 
you've won a certain way. Now, you haven't gone, as we mentioned, as far as you want to. The thing is, is like, can we name an NBA coach or even assistant right now that if you took Mike D'Antoni out, you essentially would get a similar effect, if not what you would hope for would be a better effect? I can't name one off the top of my head, but even if you had a guy come in, look at everything that Mike does and say, all right, I'm just going to duplicate what Mike, what Mike does. He doesn't know the, 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 the ins and outs of it, right? He doesn't know the relationships that Mike fosters, the communication that Mike has with the players to really help them feel comfortable and navigate their way through the way they want to play. Do you know what I mean? Like Mike has a relationship with his players, unlike, you know, really any coach I've ever played for. In the support that he gives you for shooting some of the shots and the, the, uh, the feedback that you get from him that makes you feel comfortable enough, you know, to continue to do what you're doing. And so you could maybe look at his blueprint as another guy and say, all right, we're just going to keep that set and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. But that doesn't mean you can execute it, um, and have people playing in it the way that Mike does. So I, I yeah, I'm, I'm with you. We talk about it before, like his, is his biggest weakness being a little bit stubborn, um, when trying to hammer down something specific or like when you take, coaching style aside from the yeah. personal relationship viewing mike as a coach his weakness is what so i always felt like and this is what i said about mike this was when i played for him that mike's one of his achilles heels would be you know if he didn't have a good guy as long as he had um self you know like like people who could reflect and and they were they they had you know a team first mentality uh, and they were willing to accept the blame and go back to the drawing board and do what they needed to do to fix the problem. Uh, conscientious dudes, he would be fine. But if you had someone in there that was kind of like, you know, on his own, you know, uh, you, you know, like on his own page and kind of off the reservation in terms of what philosophically we wanted to do as a team and it's kind of a rogue agent, you know, Mike doesn't have that confrontational side all the time. Like he's got a really light handed, kind of approach to things and so i felt like if he got guys like that um and the team couldn't rein them back in he would struggle with something like that uh i don't know that that's happened in houston but that's always one of the things that i felt like mike may struggle with if he got a guy who was a really good player but wasn't 100 percent invested in the way they wanted to play or what was best for the team i i didn't know how mike was going to go about approaching bringing that guy back on the reservation all right we're going to wrap things up here. Uh, the magic stuff will be talked about. CBS Sports HQ. Got about 30 seconds left. So let's end on Game of Thrones, man. I just, look, man, uh, it felt like it was rushed. Yeah. Felt sure. like they were just trying to get out of there. Um, you know, I, I did like Jon Snow with the wildlings at the end. I thought that was great. Uh, Cersei and Jamie Lannister under the rubble was ridiculous. Um, you know, the way, the way Daenerys, like, the way Daenerys died, like, yeah. were you telling, that was the most anticlimactic thing in maybe TV history for me. Like, I, I don't know. What about you? I don't know. Now, it was, it was, the first 30 minutes was okay. The rest of the episode was garbage. So. Yeah. Sansa's just, we're not going to be part of Seven Kingdoms anymore. Hey, everybody. More HQ coming up. All right.